Matthew 27, verse 1. Now when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate, the governor. So right away, as you see in verses 1 and 2, we see that the religious leaders, both political and religious, conspired against Jesus to have him killed, obviously. And it says in verse 2 that they bound him and they led him away. So these are the things, this is part of Jesus' passion, his suffering, and being rejected by his own people, specifically the religious leaders. And then they bind him and they take him away to the Roman governor, Pilate. And now let's skip down to verse 11 of Matthew 27. It says, now Jesus stood before the governor. And so we're going to see Jesus here subjecting himself. He's allowing himself to be questioned by the Roman governor. So Jesus stood before the governor and the governor questioned him, saying, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, it is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? And he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner whom they wanted. And at that time, they were holding a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you? Barabbas, or Jesus, who was called Christ. For he knew that because of envy they had handed him over. And while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent him a message saying, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for last night I suffered greatly in a dream because of him. But the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to put Jesus to death. But the governor said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. So here in verse 22 and 23, you're going to see now all the people turn on Jesus Christ at the bidding of the religious leaders, the political leaders. And if you remember from Sunday's message, these were the same people probably shouting Hosanna in the highest and, ha and hailing Jesus as their Messiah. And look at verse 22 now, or 23. No, 22. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, crucify him. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more, saying, crucify him. And when Pilate saw that he was accomplishing nothing, but rather that a riot was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people said, his blood shall be upon us and our children. Then he released Barabbas for them. But after having Jesus scourged, he handed him over to be crucified. So here in verse 26, we see what else happened to Jesus that day. He was scourged. And roaming scourging was, was pretty brutal. And I won't be graphic, but you can just imagine. They would tie the prisoner to a post and they would strip him. And then they would whip him 
with a whip that's similar to the cat of nine tails and at the end of it had lead balls or pieces of bone so that when it hit the flesh, it would rip it apart. And so the Matthew just says they scourged him and everybody knew what he meant. He didn't have to go in detail. But I think it's good to understand the suffering of Jesus for us to realize what really happened. I mean, we just sung some beautiful songs about it and they kind of give you an understanding of it. But if you can just realize how deep the father's love for, uh, for us was that he allowed his son to be scourged in our place. Going on in verse 27. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the praetorium and gathered the whole Roman cohort around him. So here in verses 27 through 29, we see that Jesus allows himself to be humiliated and mocked by the Roman soldiers. So look what they do. So they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And after twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed of thorns and in a reed in his right hand. And they knelt down before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So they're mocking him, humiliating him. And then in verses 30, we're told the following. And then they spat on him or spit on him. Could you imagine spitting on the Lord, the creator of the universe? So they spat on him and they took the reed and they began to beat him on the head. So Jesus not only allows himself to be mocked and humiliated, he allows himself to be spit upon and then beat upon on the head repeatedly. And after they had mocked him, verse 31 they took the scarlet robe off him and put on uh, put his own garments back on him and they led him away to be crucified. So he hasn't even been crucified yet, let alone that humiliation and pain. But all these other things he's allowed himself to go through. And as verse 32, and as they were coming out, they found a man of Cyrene named Simon, whom they pressed into service to bear his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And then verse 35. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garments among themselves by casting lots. So not only was he forced in, in much pain and agony and probably just lack of strength to carry his own cross and they had somebody help him probably because he couldn't do it. They finally crucify him. Going to verse 36. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. And at this time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right hand and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads. So now he's suffering verbal abuse. He's suffered physical, emotional, and now verbal abuse as people are shouting at him. And this is what they shout, starting in verse 40. And they were saying this, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and the elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. 
He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. So they're saying his words back to them. You know, God delights in him. Then why doesn't he save you? Verse 44. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same words. So here, again, we get a a full account of what Jesus was going through. And finally, and probably the worst for Jesus, his own father, the Lord, the Lord forsakes him. Look at verses 45 and 46. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? So God the Father now in some way turns from the Son and forsakes him. And verse 47 says, And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And so that's the account of Jesus's suffering and crucifixion, according to Matthew. So that's what happened to Jesus this day, close to 2000 years ago. So the question becomes, well, we know what happened, but why did it happen? Why did God do this? Well, for one, sin needed to be punished and atoned for. All of humanity has sinned against God. And since God loved the world so much, he sent his son to take the place for sinful humanity, for you and me. And he allowed the wrath, his own wrath, to fall upon his son. And maybe that's what happened when Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was at that point that all of God's wrath to punish sin was poured out on Jesus Christ. And so that's why it needed to happen. And Jesus was willing to obey the Father, we're told in Scripture a number of times, even to death. And in this, Jesus demonstrated his love for us. Let's look at one verse uh, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, where it talks about this. It talks about the love of Jesus. It says this in Hebrews 12, verse 2. Fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter, the perfecter of faith, and this is where I want to point it. I want to point this out. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So the joy set before him was one, the obedience that he found, the joy that he found in obedience to the father and also for humanity, for you and me. Jesus saw what was going to happen and he out of his love took the punishment in our place. And so that's why it happened. I mean, we could spend a lot more time speaking about that. But we won't tonight. So again, why did this happen? Well, sin needed to be punished and atoned for. And God loved us so much that he sent his son to take our place on the cross. And God's wrath fell upon him. And Jesus demonstrated his love for us by doing that. And so the question tonight 
is, have you received God's loving sacrifice? So all this was done for you. Have you received it? If so, then in a few minutes, if you've received it, I'm going to invite you to commemorate God's sacrifice on the cross. And you're receiving of it by partaking of communion. So down here, uh, we have the crackers and the juice that represent the body of Christ and the blood of Christ that was sacrificed for you and for me. And so if you receive God's loving sacrifice by believing in it, then when we have communion, I would ask that you would come down and commemorate it. Because that's what we're doing tonight. We're just remembering, not just, but we're remembering what Jesus did for us. And there's no better way to do that than to partake of communion. If you have not received God's sacrifice, then I invite you to receive it tonight. What does that mean? How do you receive God's loving sacrifice? Well, number one, it's asking God to forgive you of your sins against him. So if you've never repented of your sins, of your past and all that you've done against God, then I would ask tonight that you would do that. Because that's what tonight is all about. We're remembering what he's done. And so in order to receive that, you need to ask God to forgive you of your sins against him. That also includes not only asking for that, but it means believing that Jesus took your place in death on the cross. Because, again, if you're partaking of communion, you're saying, I believe what he did. I believe that these accurately represent and symbolize his sacrifice for me. And so you take it because you believe it. And you also believe in Jesus' subsequent, uh, he subsequently defeated the defeated death and gave us eternal life by rising from the dead. Let me share with you one more verse in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 through 17. So if you have your Bible tonight, turn there with me. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, verses 13 through 17. It says, and this is important. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And this is obviously what we're going to be celebrating in a couple of days. But Paul's making the argument. If there's no such thing as a resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain. Your faith also is in vain. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses of God because we testify against God, that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if in fact the dead are not raised. He's saying we're lying. If, if we're saying God did something that he really didn't do, then we're testifying against God because we say he raised Christ from the dead and Christ really wasn't risen. But here's the important part for tonight. Uh, verse 16 and 17. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been risen. And if Christ has not been raised... Your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. So part of believing in Jesus Christ and receiving forgiveness of sins is believing not only that he died for you, but he rose again on the third day. Because if he didn't rise again, then he's just a dead man, just like you and me will be at some time in the future. There's no power in that. We're still in our sins. And he goes on and says, Let's stop there in verse 17. If Christ hasn't risen, then we're still in our sins 
and there's really no reason to be here. So believing in Jesus means believing that he took your place in, uh, of, and, uh, by dying on the cross and also by rising from the dead, he defeated death and we're forgiven of our sins and we now gain eternal life. So that's part of believing on Jesus Christ. And also it means committing yourself to follow him. It's like, yes, I believe what you did. I believe what you said. And now I'm going to follow you as my Lord and Savior. And if you do that tonight, then commemorate this choice of yours by partaking in communion. Because you're saying, now I believe in it. I believe in his sacrifice. I believe what he did for me. I believe he took my place. And I'm going to remember that by partaking of communion. And I would say this in conclusion. If you do not receive God's sacrifice, if you hear this and you're here tonight, you're saying, well, I don't believe that. Well, then I would ask you, do not partake in communion when we have communion because you're just profaning God. You don't believe in it, so why do it? I would ask you to respectfully just stay in your seat and not partake. But know this, that the rejection of God's sacrifice will mean that Jesus' sacrifice doesn't apply to you and that you will have to suffer the wrath of God yourself when you die. You will stand before God and pay for the penalty of your sin against him. I pray you do not choose that way, but it is your choice. I truly believe you have that choice to make tonight. So again, before we partake of communion, I would say this. If you've received God's loving sacrifice and you believe on him, then partake in communion. If you want to believe in him, I would ask in a moment as we have a few moments of silence that in your heart you would ask God to forgive you of your sins. You would repent of them. You would believe that Jesus took your place in death on the cross. And you would believe that Jesus' subsequent resurrection defeated the penalty of death and has given you eternal life. And you will commit to following him with all your heart. Let's pray. Lord God, we... Again, thank you for your great sacrifice. And as we read the account of what your son went through, how he was mocked and verbally abused and physically abused and crucified. We thank you, Lord God, that he took our place because he loved us, because you loved us. And tonight, Lord God, we want to commemorate that by partaking in communion and by closing tonight in worship of you. And so we thank you for that. And Lord, if there's anybody in this room tonight who has not received that and is ready to do that, I pray that in this few next few moments before they come up and partake of communion, that they would cry out to you, that they would repent of their sins and ask for forgiveness and believe on you and follow you all their life. I pray that you would help them to make that decision, Lord, in these next few moments. And again, we thank you for your great sacrifice. And we love you, Lord. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.